You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Intuit from Vulture and New York Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Sanders. And I want to talk about a video I saw on the internet a few weeks ago. It was this video for unicorn dolls that poop. And in the commercial, they're dancing and singing about how they poop. What you gonna do with all that poop? All that poop? Yeah. Woo, woo, woo. I'm a poop, 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 poop. Oh yeah. I'm gonna get loopy off my poopy. My poop, my poop. That's right. My poop, my poop, my poop. Check it out. And the song that they're singing, it has an uncanny resemblance to a Black Eyed Peas song. You know, my humps. What you gonna do with all that junk? All that junk inside your trunk. I'ma get, 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 get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. I love this unicorn poop song, but the Black Eyed Peas do not. They are suing the makers of the unicorn poop dolls over this very, very catchy bop. And here's the thing. This video, it could just be fun and giggles for me, but... This case and a few other cases like it working their way through the courts right now, they could actually have a big impact on the kinds of music we get to hear, the kind of art we consume, and the kinds of things that get to hang in museums. So today we're going to talk unicorns and poop, but also another fight between Andy Warhol's estate and a photographer who took a classic photo of Prince. Their argument, their case, it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. To explain all of this is Mark Joseph Stern. He works for Slate, and he's one of my favorite Supreme Court reporters. Mark, great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. It is delightful to be with you and to be talking about Poopsie's Slime Surprise, which is a really (laughs) great break from my usual beats, but still, oddly, very important to freedom of speech in this country. There you go. There you go. Before we get into the legalese of it all, I have to ask, point blank, do you like the unicorn poop song? Be honest. I I think like is not a a strong enough word for it. I love the unicorn poop song. I I would like to say that I watched it 10 times just to prepare for this recording, but I just became infatuated with it. I think it is a brilliant work of art. I think it is transformative. I think it is really, I think, deserving of the legal protection that its makers insist upon. But, you know, I tend to kind of err on the side of 
of free speech. I'm kind of skeptical of overzealous copyright assertions. And so it was always inevitable I was going to be on team poopsie slime surprise here. Poopsie slime surprise. I love it. Uh, Let's just lay out for listeners really quickly who haven't been following this case. What are the poopsie slime surprise folks arguing? And what are the black eyed peas arguing? Yeah, so so Poopsie Slime Surprise is a line of unicorn dolls that excrete sparkling slime. That Stop is right their there. charm. Stop right there. It's just amazing. <laughs> just for that alone, they should win. Anywho, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, the ingenuity that went into making this doll is like, what what will humans do next? This is like just below taking us to the moon, to me. But, uh, you know, they've made these dolls. (laughs) They want to market them, right? So they have this video that they put out that's designed to be a viral video. And as you said, it features the Poopsie Slime Surprise dolls animated singing a song that sounds a lot like My Humps. So, of course, not everybody is a fan of this. The record label that owns the rights to My Humps uh, goes to court and files a copyright lawsuit and mm-hmm. says, you know, this is clearly infringing on our copyright to My Humps, the song by the Black Eyed Peas. The lawyers for the label claim, and I'm quoting, that the Black Eyed Peas are arguably the most popular and recognized pop musical group in the past uh-uh. 30 years, uh-uh. which uh-uh. I think is a contestable statement, wow. but we'll just wow. go with that. And they say basically that this is really kind of offensive to the artistic integrity of the Black Eyed Peas and my house. Okay, okay, okay. The Black Eyed Peas are offensive to me as a person. (laughs) Have you heard these songs? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, um, yeah, I'm just telling you what the lawyers say here. I'm, you know, I'm not <laughs> stepping up for this label. They say that the fans deserve better than this. That the millions of folks around the world deserve to to be able to listen to my humps and my humps alone, and not have that experience diluted by pooping unicorns. And they say that basically this company has just ripped a song whose rights are fully protected in order to sell a product. And that is like the quintessential copyright violation. And they're asking for more than $10 million in damages, plus an injunction that takes that video off the internet forever. Are the unicorn folks just saying, well, actually, we didn't make my humps. We made my poop. Because they do say my poop, my poop, my poop, my poop. I mean, obviously you're right. What the unicorn folks are saying, and they haven't mounted a full-on defense here, but their basic argument is, look, there's copyright, of course. You know, people get to hold the rights to their intellectual property and their art. But there's also this thing called fair use that is built into copyright law that has really from the founding of this country that is designed to kind of create a buffer for freedom of expression. And fair use is is pretty complicated, but at its heart, it says that if you want to take an original work and transform it into something else by commenting on it, by making fun of it, by changing its meaning or its message, you are allowed to do that without paying money to the original 
copyright holder. And so what the unicorn folks are saying is, you know, we were sort of making fun of my humps. We were trying to parody the original meaning of it by tying it into these ridiculous unicorns, by changing it from being about butts to the thing that butts make, which is poop. (laughs) And in doing so, we really transformed it into a different and new work of art that falls outside the original copyright. And so this is an act of freedom of speech, not an act of copyright infringement. Huh. Who's going to win? This is a really tough case, I have to say. And one of the issues here is that as as much as I want to just stand up for the unicorn poop folks, because what a (laughs) righteous battle, you know, they have launched Mm -hmm. here, truly, Mm -hmm. they have a problem which is that historically, and especially in Supreme Court precedent, this idea of transforming a piece of art through parody, it's usually involves something that's not so crassly commercial. So the unicorn oh. doll people are trying to sell a product, right? And They're not making art is- for art's sake. They're not making art for art's sake. They're not making a, you know, a song that they want to perform for the masses. They're not making some kind of short film that they want to submit to the Oscars. Like, you know, they're just really wanting to get these dolls in the hands of young children. Um, and, you know, it, it really leads to, I think, a very thorny question because Intuitively, that makes sense to me. Like, yeah, this is basically an ad and that's different from a traditional work of art. But at the same time, like it's 2023, all art is commercial on some level. Like you make a parody song, you're trying to sell downloads. You make a parody film, you're trying to get people to buy the -hmm. rights to it. Like this is not an easy line to draw. And this is a problem that's gonna keep coming up in all of these cases. All right, time for a quick break. But before we go, got a job for you. If you like this show and want to support it, we could use your help. Subscribe to Intuit on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, share this show with your friends. Tell your friends about this show, IRL. Every little bit helps. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. 
I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So the reason we're doing this episode, I see the poop black eyed peas story. I tell my editor, I'm like, this is interesting. And then we do some Googling. Turns out a similar case is right in front of the Supreme Court. Same kind of issues at play. But this one involves the estate of Andy Warhol and a photographer who took a classic photo of Prince. What's that case? So this is an amazing case. I was lucky enough to be in the Supreme Court for oral arguments when it went down. And it's another pretty difficult one, to my mind, because there are legitimate free speech arguments on both sides. So here's the background. There's this photographer named Lynn Goldsmith who took this iconic photo of Prince. If you Google Lynn Goldsmith Prince, you'll see the picture, you'll recognize it. In 1984, Vanity Fair commissions Andy Warhol to use that picture as the basis of a new work of art. Vanity Fair pays Goldsmith a paltry $400 to license the photograph as the basis of, of this painting. And Andy Warhol produces a work that I think most people would also be very familiar with. It's it's this silkscreen painting of Prince that has a kind of hollowed out feeling. It's very flat. His face looks mask-like. It is different from the original picture, but obviously based upon it. Um, so Vanity Fair puts that on its cover. Andy Warhol actually goes on to create a bunch more works, 14 more works in total based on mm. that picture. And nobody ever pays Goldsmith any more money. Like the only money she ever got for this was the 400 bucks from Vanity Fair up front for her to basically mail them that photograph. 2016, Prince dies. Vanity Fair puts that Andy Warhol painting on the cover of its magazine as a tribute to Prince. And Lynn Goldsmith comes out of the woodwork and says, hey, what are you doing? You know, I licensed my photograph for this one painting this one time, Mm -hmm. and you are putting it on the cover of your magazine all these years later to try to sell copies. You owe me money. You need to settle this. And instead of actually responding to Lynn Goldsmith, basically the Andy Warhol estate decides, oh, you know, we have a problem here because we now own 15 Andy Mm -hmm. Warhol works that are all based on this photograph. Uh, Vanity Fair is sort of caught in the middle, like, oh, we don't know what to do. The Andy Warhol estate goes to court and says, you know what, Lynn Goldsmith, we're going to sue you. Wait, wait, stop. They sued Lynn? They're going to say, we need this court to tell the world that we own the rights to these works, that all these paintings and drawings are ours, and that you do not have any copyright claim over this. So Lynn is the one who gets sued, and that is how this case makes its way up to SCOTUS. Wow. Is there a scenario in which Lynn or the Warhol estate could have just been like, here's a little bitty check, go away? They didn't want to do that? (laughs) So I think the problem here, and this this is me like editorializing, Go back to 1984 when all this begins. Vanity Fair tells Goldsmith, like, we want 
your photograph for a painting, it doesn't tell her that it's going to be an Andy Warhol painting. Mm. So she's probably thinking they're going to get some like low rent artist in a Brooklyn loft, Mm -hmm. which at the time Mm -hmm. was probably like $20 a month in rent to just do some quick brush strokes and touch it up and put it on the cover. And then she finds out, oh my God, it was Andy freaking Warhol. Warhol, He's going to turn my Prince photo. Yeah. He's going to turn my Prince (laughs) photo into like 18 Campbell soup cans. Of different colors. Exactly right. And I think, and if you read the briefing, this kind of comes through, like, I think she still holds a grudge about that, that she only ever got 400 bucks to provide the inspiration for this famous series. And so I don't think she was ever really going to settle because she has held this grudge for decades. And this was like her time to shine. I love anybody who holds onto a grudge all the way to the Supreme (laughs) Court. Sign me up. Sign me up. You told me when I chatted with you last week about this case that it was going to be a, quote, atomic bomb in the art world. Why? So there's really two sides. I'm not going to try to take a side here, but both of them have a whole lot to lose from this case. Start with the photographers. Every photographer you've ever heard of has weighed in on this case and said, like, this is an existential threat to our profession because photographers need to be able to get paid for their work. And if you can just take a picture and touch it up and make it look a little different and say, oh, I don't know anybody anything, then photographers are all going to be penniless and out on the street and their profession will go away. That's what they say, at least. But then look on the other side. So on the other side, you've got All of these artists, all of these museums, all of these lawyers who do art law, you've got the Met, you've got MoMA, you've got the Art Institute of Chicago, you've got the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, the Roy Lichtenstein Foundation, saying, if this is really infringement, and if the lower court's decisions are upheld here, because the lower court ruled in favor of the photographer, then we are terrified, absolutely terrified, that we are going to get slapped with suit after suit based on what is hanging on our walls because Mm. we have a lot of modern and postmodern art and the Mm -hmm. reality is that a lot of that stuff is derivative. A lot of that Mm. stuff is based on previous works by previous artists. You know, it has all kinds of components from other works that are sort of incorporated and transformed and they're like, we think we are going to have to shut our doors or make our walls bare because we are going to be terrified of Lynn Goldsmiths of the world all crawling out of the woodwork and forcing us to either pay a huge amount of money or take down the paintings that we thought we owned all the rights to. So you were there for oral arguments. I'm very jealous. What was the mood (laughs) like in the room? And can you make any predictions about how the justice will rule based on what you heard and saw? So the mood was alternately kind of goofy and tense. Um, The lawyers there arguing for both sides did a really good job, I think. And the justices were seemingly groping toward a solution in good faith without any partisan valence. And I think that's important to note because, look, most of the cases I cover, there's some kind of political angle, whether we're talking about elections or race or or even free speech. You know, a lot of that stuff does play into politics. This is not so clearly political. Like, this is a case that is uh, all about art and what constitutes art and when a new kind of art uh, gains its own kind of independent existence. And I, I think that the justices really probably leaned away from 
Lynn Goldsmith and toward Andy Warhol uh, for much of the argument. You know, you could tell that these justices were worried about the free speech issue here, that, you know, if Lynn Goldsmith wins, that these museums are going to have to shut their doors and all of these artworks will disappear or get sued into oblivion. But then, and I thought this was a really interesting and kind of notable shift in the room, you started hearing concerns about technology. And you started hearing concerns about how the rise of phones and AI apps and cameras that everybody has and and can use to, you know, manipulate pictures and all that stuff, how that could affect the analysis here. Because the court hasn't considered one of these cases in a long time. People didn't even have flip phones the last time the court took up a case like this. Mm. And now they're having to deal with the fact that you don't have to be Andy Warhol to transform a photograph. You can have an AI just go to chat that transforms a picture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can have an AI app that makes you look like a sexy villain or like a buff superhero in a hundred different photos. And, you know, if somebody else took that picture of you, you could say, well, you, you know, you don't own that. I ran it through the AI app and yeah. now I own all these pictures. Or, so you then, know, you just airbrush it and suddenly yeah. your face looks nicer. You say, well, I own this picture because I made it original. Well, that's the thing. You know, we've seen this struggle play out in court cases for as long as people have owned art or ideas about art. But is it really, really fundamentally different now with the AI of it all and the speed at which computers and programs can generate a thousand Prince Warhols in two minutes? Yeah, I think it is. And I don't admit that lightly, but I I really think this is a challenge to this entire area of law because the way it was built up before was like, you know, people really put their blood, sweat, and tears into transforming these works. There's a famous case where there is a parody of the song Pretty Woman, um, the Roy Orbison song. Uh, This group called Two Live Crew decided to do their own version. (laughs) I was hoping you'd get to it. And that goes up to the Supreme Court. The question is, well, is that fair use? Is it transformative? And the court says yes. And one of the big reasons is because they say, well, look, Two Live Crew put a lot of thought and care into devising this parody of the original and, you know, really made sure to kind of take the ideas that were expressed in the original and turn them on their head. I could read you a quote. Uh, This is Justice Souter, who is like famously not a guy with a good sense of humor, uh, Uh though I love him. He says... Two Live Crew juxtaposes the romantic musings of a man whose fantasy comes true with the degrading taunts, a body demand for sex, and a sigh of relief from paternal responsibility. Oh, my God. Like, I mean, he's really getting into it. And, like, that was back in the 90s, okay? Today, I can go on to ChatGPT and ask it to write a 100 parodies Literally. of Pretty Woman. Literally. And they all might be better than the first one. And I didn't put anything into that. And I really don't know whether it's still transformative when I outsource the work to a robot. And I think that's one of the big issues that this court has to decide. Pizza woman, pretzel woman, pretend woman, party woman, pregnant woman, plastic woman, pandemic woman, puzzle woman. I want to talk more about how this ruling, these rulings will affect 
how we consume pop culture, entertainment, media, all of it, because I have been thinking about a, I have been thinking a lot about rights and licensing and who owns what in terms of audio and song use and podcasting. When I started out in audio, we basically had free reign to use whatever song we wanted to, and we just said fair use. And if we were discussing this song in a manner that offered commentary or analysis or education about it, we could use as much of the song as we wanted to. And something happened, I want to say around the rise of the streaming era, these record labels began cracking down a lot. And now if you listen to podcasts, you will just hear less popular songs in podcasts than you did 10 years ago. And there are even some podcasters who've had to pull down episodes they've already published because the labels changed their mind later about how much they could use. And so as a podcaster who was experiencing that in the music licensing world, my general default stance on this kind of stuff is like, make it as open as possible. How is that struggle in that world different from what we're seeing with these cases here? And is it fair for someone like me to say, open it all up, even with the AI, because it's better open than closed? So I think that's perfectly fair. And I don't think that struggle is meaningfully different from everything we've been discussing up till now. It's the same issue of when you are transforming an original work uh, into something that's new and, and novel and changing its meaning or message. And that's true of whether it's parody, of whether it's Andy Warhol's Silkscreen, or whether you're playing a clip of a song in a podcast about pop music so you can deconstruct it and talk about what it means. It's true of even uh, interspersing your, your podcast with music to try to yeah. tie together the segments. Like, yeah. that stuff is really common, and it really, it was not until recently that record labels started cracking down. I think a good analogy here is Sam in popular mm. music, especially rap and hip hop. You know, for, for a long time, creators who sampled previous works didn't even credit or pay royalties for it. They huh. just took it. Now, I dare you to go look at the credits for a single song on Beyonce's Renaissance. Okay, she has there credits. are like a hundred credits, <laughs> ten thousand people credited yeah. on each song because, yeah. like, it, it just any snippet of a previous work that she used, her label understandably felt like they had to credit it. And that's what we're facing now in the media world as well. It's the same issue where we're all afraid of these suits. And I think one of the problems here is, is actually built into copyright law. So fair use is what we call an affirmative defense. And that means that you can only raise it as a defense when somebody else has accused you of stealing their work. And that means means that you are already in trial facing a jury over your alleged infringement on somebody's copyright. Trials cost a lot of money. Nobody wants to go through an entire mm -hmm. trial. Like you might pay your lawyer for that trial more than it would have cost to just settle early on. And so what, what a lot of rights owners have realized, and that includes music labels, is that if they just threaten to sue, you, you're not going to be like, oh, this is fair use. How yep. dare you assault yep. me with this? It's my free speech. Yeah. You're going to say, oh, my God, how can I pay I'll you to make this go away? Yeah. 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 How much of all of this, the, the music industry stuff, the poop stuff, the Warhol print <laughs> stuff, how much does the whole public domain of it all play into this? From my understanding, once anything is 100 years old, anybody can do whatever they want to do with it, right? So – 
It's a great question. And I actually think that the shrinking of the public domain has led to a lot of the disorders and pathologies that we see in copyright law today. So back at the founding, when the framers wrote the Constitution, they envisioned a very large and robust public domain and really did not expect copyrights to last for very long. Um, the whole point of copyrights was to protect your work for like a short amount of time so you could get some money off of it and then release it into the wild like a young whale who has been rehabilitated to go find its home and family and live its own life. Like Thomas <laughs> Jefferson would not have wanted the Black Eyed Peas label to sue the My Poops people. I promise you that. But question, and, would Thomas Jefferson think my humps and even my poop is a bop? Oh, 100%. He was a freaky guy. Like, we don't need to get into it, but that man was twisted. Um, so the problem is that, you know, people own the rights to their work. They make a lot of money off of it. What happens in the United States when you make money? You spend it on elections and on politicians. And so what has happened over the centuries is that corporations that own a ton of copyrights have periodically gone to Congress and asked Congress to extend the length of copyrights by decades and decades and decades. And that is how we're in this position today when stuff is only entering the public domain a century after it has been published. There's actually this complicated formula that involves the time since the creator's death, but like a century is kind of a good uh, shortcut here. And so the most recent time this happened, it was because Mickey Mouse was going to enter the public domain. So oh. Disney went to Congress and said, hell no, like give us a couple more decades on this gravy train. And people huh. called that the Mickey Mouse Copyright Act. And the oh, Supreme wow. Court actually upheld it seven to two and said, in short, like we don't care about the free speech concerns we don't care about the public domain. Like, if corporations and Congress want to give the rights holders just an endless gravy train off this stuff, it is not the court's business. Hmm. Huh. So then, I want to know what would change for me as a consumer of entertainment and pop culture based on the Supreme Court's ruling. But I also feel like, hearing this conversation... It's hard to know because this fight's not going to die. There'll be a ruling on the Warhol Prince thing, but as AI continues to change the whole cultural landscape, there'll be more stuff about that. Is this just going to be an ongoing fight? And if so, what does it look like? Yeah, I think this fight's going to go on forever as long as there's a lot of money on both sides. I think it's really notable that here... Both Lynn Goldsmith and the Andy Warhol Foundation were able to hire two of the most prominent and expensive Supreme Court litigators to, to argue this case. Like, there is big money here. And it is because copyright still produces a whole lot of moolah for the people who own them. And so, yeah, I wish I could predict exactly how this plays out in the future. I can't for the reasons you just laid out. Like, it's a really big unknown. And however the court rules here, it's going to end up producing some new controversy that comes back in a couple of years and they have to do it all over again. What I would say is that in the end, Congress really has to come huh. in here and LOL. set some ground rules. LOL. And I know that's a big LOL because like Congress doesn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and that is generally true. But I think when, you, when you're dealing with stuff like AI, where somebody can take a copyrighted work and transform it a hundred times over in a second and then try to say that's fair use, 
abuse. Like the courts are not competent to deal with that just Mm. as they aren't competent to decide what's art and what's not. And that's Mm. sort of the fundamental question in this case, you know, is the Andy Warhol work like a different piece of art or is it Mm -hmm. just a crass copy? The courts have long said like, we don't want to do that. We are bad art critics. We do not have good taste in this stuff. Uh, Well, they, they might personally think they do, but most of them are humble enough to understand that like they cannot be the tastemakers for the country. And I think the task really does fall on Congress to decide how you write a new copyright law that does respect the rights of people who own this intellectual property while allowing creators, podcast hosts, painters, interesting and thoughtful people to work off that original and develop something new without getting slapped with a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the majority of listeners to this show are not coming for Supreme Court commentary, although they're going to love this. But they're just like, you know, pop culture fiends like me. They're Vulture fans and they're really concerned and want to know more about the stuff they watch and read and the celebrities who make it. For just like a devoted pop culture junkie hearing this conversation, saying to themselves, well, I want to know how to be on the right side of this. What should our North Star be as we follow these fights and these cases? How should I consume (sighs) art differently or better knowing that all of these fights are happening? What's your advice to viewers like me? (laughs) I mean, look, I... I think I I think I, I I fall in the same bucket as you, where more freedom is better. And one of the defining moments here for me was when Olivia Rodrigo's album came out. Obviously, loved it. You know, I am homosexual. Yeah. I love her. <laughs> uh, Joshua Bassett, Rotten Hell, etc. And that album came out, had a lot of bops. And then the rights holders started coming out, like sneaking out of the bushes and saying, hey, this song sounds a lot like mm-hmm. a Taylor Swift song. This or a Paramore song. sounds a lot like a Paramore song. better lay down some money and give some credit if you want these songs to stay on the radio. And Mm -hmm. I think that was just total BS. Like, Olivia Rodrigo was not doing anything different from Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci, honestly. Wait, stop, 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 stop. I want to save those words. I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're putting Olivia Rodrigo up there, and I love it. I love it. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I would say she's, like, below Michelangelo, but above Raphael. That would be <laughs> sort of my yes, my yes. ordering. Um, but look, like, those guys were looking around, seeing what other people did at the time in Florence and Rome and wherever, and copying some of it. Like, the Renaissance artists from top to bottom, we're absolutely incorporating other people's ideas and other people's work. And that has held true throughout all of history. And this idea that just because the bridge of uh, one particular song kind of sounds like the bridge of another, that if you put them side by side, you sort of hear the resemblance. Like, that is not, to me, a copyright violation. It shouldn't be. And... Like, that is the quintessential example of somebody transforming somebody else's idea into something new and fun and expanding the universe of art that everybody on this planet gets to enjoy. 
Exactly. Also, whenever I hear people fighting over your pop song sounds like mine, it's like if it's on top 40 radio, it's only four chords anyway. Let's not act like any of you were doing rocket science with this music. (laughs) No, and there's a limited number of keys on a piano. Exactly. There's only so much you can do to come up with new stuff. And that's fine. Like we enjoy hearing people put fresh spins on older work. Yeah. And I think if if everybody's terrified of these suits, then they're not going to be making as much work as they want to. And we're not going to be enjoying as much music and film and art as we want to. And so I understand, like, look, if you love Paramore and you hate Olivia Rodrigo, like, you're probably (laughs) going to come down on Paramore's side of this, right? You're going to be like, screw Olivia. Like, she stole this. Like, I am team Paramore all the way. Like, fork over that copyright money. And I, I, I get that. I do. But you got to think of the bigger picture, which is that, like, we live in 2023. Everything that's been done will be done again. Everything that Mm -hmm. can be done has already been done. We're building off each other's ideas. And we should just err on the side of letting people come up with interesting new ways to express stuff, even if they're building off the works of their ancestors. Describing Paramore as an ancestor makes me feel very old, but (laughs) Sam, I think it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. So what I hear you saying is justice for Olivia Rodrigo, justice for Warhol, justice for the My Poop Unicorns. Let it all be free. I could not agree more. Thank you. You could, you know, you could do my job. You've summarized it beautifully. (laughs) When should we expect to know something about this Warhol Prince case from SCOTUS? So this was one of the first cases that the court heard this term back in October. And I think a decision is likely to come down probably by April, if not by May. Um, It won't be one of the big blockbusters to come down in June, I suspect. They'll want to clear their plate. But, you know, the fact that we haven't gotten a decision yet suggests that the court is divided. If it takes Mm. this long, it usually means somebody's got the majority, somebody's writing a dissent, there Mm. might be some concurrences. And Mm -hmm. there's a chance that the court could divide so bad that they don't end up really solving anything. This happens all the time at the Supreme Court. Like, you get four justices saying one thing, three saying another thing, two saying another thing, and then nobody actually really wins. And that is a possibility in this case. So as much as the entire artistic industry just wants a clear answer here, the court might not give one, and that means we will all be in the same place, perhaps in the My Poops case, trying to figure out what is original art, what is copyright infringement, and what falls in the vast chasm in between. There we go. Well, I'll be staying tuned, and I will be watching for your feedback on whatever this ruling is. I'll be listening and paying very close attention to which samples you use so I can notify (laughs) Sony that you are infringing. (laughs) I just need Olivia Rodrigo to make an acoustic tearjerker ballad rendition of My Poop, My Poop, My Poop. That's what I want. (laughs) I would gladly play the piano in the background of that. Sign me up. Yes. (laughs) Mark Joseph Stern, find his Supreme Court reporting over at Slate. Please come back anytime. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Listeners, if you liked what we discussed in this episode, go check out an episode over at Switched on Pop. It's called Invasion of the Vibe Snatchers. It's all about how a lot of pop music really does sound the same because so many artists are interpolating or incorporating musical ideas from songs by other artists and re-recording or reimagining them. It's really good. Trust me. Go listen. It's great. 
All right, Intuit is hosted by me, Sam Sanders. The show is produced by Janae West, Travis Larchuk, Gabby Grossman, Jelani Carter, and Taka Zinn. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our music is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. And Hannah Rosen is the head of audio at New York Magazine. All right, listeners, we are back on Friday with a brand new episode. Till then, be good to yourselves. Bye. Phantom Woman. Pumpkin Woman. Perfume Woman. Pancake Woman. Penguin Woman. Pillow Woman. Popcorn Woman. Popsicle Woman. Pomegranate Woman. Polaroid Woman. Pinecone Woman. Porcelain Woman. Peekaboo Woman. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.